Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest in this episode is Aro Velmet, the author of Pasteur's Empire, Bacteriology in France, Its Colonies, and the World. And the book was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Hi there, Aro. Hi. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, Roxanne. Aro, before we get to talking about your work, I've just been asking people, you know, how they've been doing in this period of global pandemic, such a challenging time. Do you want to tell us, you know, where you are and how that's how that's been for you? Yeah, where I am. That's a that's a question I ask myself uh, very often. (laughs) It's uh, right now I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, Two weeks ago, Mm. I was in in Tallinn, Estonia, and this has been pretty much my year uh, shuttling between these two places. You know, it's been intellectually uh, super interesting as a historian of epidemics and public health. I've gained a completely new understanding of the people I work on and uh, the situations I I look at in my research. You know, I sort of knew that one of the interesting things about epidemics is the kind of fog of war that they generate, the the sort of Mm -hmm. deep unknowability of how things will pan out. But to to experience this on a daily basis, you know, to suddenly wake up one morning and, and realize that you know, international flights have been grounded and, and you, you know, may not get out of the country that you're in or get into the country that you want to go to mm-hmm. has been quite stunning. So, yeah, it's been it's been intellectually very interesting and stimulating. And it's been personally very challenging and a lot of hard work, you know, and I've been in a very privileged position in that I, I don't really have people that I'm, I'm responsible for caring for or anything like that. So I've had a stable job, but you know, even in those conditions, uh, it's been super challenging. Aro, I also, I mean, as you know, as a listener, I always ask people, why France? How did you come to this area of study and, uh, you know, to the subject of the book? Uh, so I didn't really come to France uh, because I was super interested in France, particularly, you know, not that I have any, anything against France and I love spending time in various Francophone places, but that wasn't the first thing on my mind. I was really interested from from very early on, uh, you know, from college, I was interested in the relationship of, of biology and, uh, I guess, ideology. Partly, I think this had to do with growing up in Estonia, where you know, in the 1990s and and early 2000s, there was this constant political discourse around falling birth rates and, you know, the future of the Estonian nation and are women having enough babies to reproduce Mm. the national body. And, and, you know, this linked up with immigration and uh, xenophobia in different kinds of ways, you know, of course, with homophobia and heteronormativity and other kinds of ways. It was the basis for a number of fairly progressive uh, public policies, like very well-funded parental leave policies. Uh, So it was Mm -hmm. very complex and, and interesting, but it was really hard 
to study that. Um, and I kind of didn't want to study it either when I went to college and was uh, was starting to think about going to grad school because it felt a little bit too close to home. It felt like there wasn't there weren't enough scholars around who were thinking about these kinds of questions. But then, you know, <laughs> this is uh, this is the French Third Republic all over again, right? Uh, this the same concerns over the natalité mm. and the dégénérescence that are animating French public discourse after the Franco-Prussian War. You know, were the kinds of things that I was interested in. Mm. So I was immediately drawn to that period and and those kinds of questions. And, you know, in, in the case of France, it's uh, the situation is a, is a little bit the opposite. There is just a huge amount of scholarship that deals with, with biology and the nation. Mm-hmm. So, so there the question was, okay, you know, what's the angle or, you know, what's the new contribution that I could make? And, and I started increasingly uh, thinking about, you know, some of these excellent works by people like, you know, Christopher Forth or Eleonora Campo or, or you know, even George Massey, if you really want to talk about the classics, are, are really taking apart the political discourse around reproduction and, and biology. Right. So that then took me to the history of science and technology and then uh, eventually to the book project. Well, it's pretty fascinating to me, you know, all the things that you bring together in this project, Aro. In that introduction, Technology and Scale in in Colonial Politics, you describe the project as a sort of meeting of bacteriological technoscience and imperial governance during the Third Republic. So let's, let's get real simple for a second. I say bacteriology. You say, <laughs> well, in the in the context of of the late nineteenth century, certainly, what this really means is the germ theory of disease. Mm. It's the idea that diseases are caused by these microscopic pathogens that we today call bacteria and viruses that penetrate the human body. You know, the same, you know, SARS and CoV two being one one such example. Yeah. And this is a dramatically different model of disease generation than, you know, anything that really had preceded it when people were were talking about, you know, miasmatic theories of disease, diseases that are caused by, by bad air or by um, bad moral behavior or an imbalance of, of the humors, right? There are a variety mm-hmm. of disease ecologies. Um, out there. But it's really in the second half of the 19th century when people uh, like Louis Pasteur or, or Robert Koch, thanks to you know a number of technological and, and theoretical advances, can first observe bacteria and really develop this idea that bacteria can be uh, the causes of, of disease. And the book is, you know, we may as well lead with the title, it's Pasteur's Empire. So let's just kind of situate Pasteur for people. I mean, you just have in terms of the germ theory of disease, but, you know, his significance in the French context, and then, you know, as a kind of world figure, like, what does that moment represent? And what does he represent in French history and for your project? He at the time, certainly represents the pinnacle of French science and, and French medicine. It's, uh, I think, no mm-hmm. uh, exaggeration to say that he's kind of a, a world-class celebrity by the time of his his death, you know, by the mm-hmm. end of the 19th century. He's the kind of guy that, that people um, will travel all over the world uh, to see in action or to study with. Mm. One of the main characters of the book, Alexandre Yersin, is a, is a Swiss doctor, who comes to Paris to become uh, a physician, 
and almost leaves, uh, but then encounters Pasteur and and decides to say to stay and is really kind of blown away by his intellectual stature. Um, and France really is the the heart of uh, medical sciences in the world in this period. Mm. This is something that would change quite dramatically, you know, in a in a couple of decades as we move into uh, World War One and the interwar years. But but at that time, it really is home to a to a number of important uh, developments you know the rise of hospital medicine mm-hmm. the rise of physiology you know claude bernard's uh, important work and then bastur's work on developing uh, vaccines and ways of improving viticulture and uh, and other kinds of agriculture mm-hmm. uh, so pasteur for instance develops the rabies vaccine which makes him incredibly famous sure thanks louis <laughs> <laughs> i mean the other reason why um Pasteur is so important is that he becomes in a number of ways, or his work rather, the, the thing that he stands for, this germ theory of disease, this, this very modern way of thinking about the causation of disease and how diseases can be cured, becomes a fundamental part of the French civilizing mission, of the kind of mm-hmm. humanitarian claim that the French can say that they're providing in their overseas empire, you know, is modern medicine. And in a lot of places, what this means are are vaccination programs and other interventions, disinfection programs, um, agricultural improvement programs that are based on Pistorian technologies and that the French very much sell under that particular banner. Um, so it's a PR tool for the French in a number of different ways. And, and I kind of treat Pasteur like that in the book, too, uh, you know, not just as a person, but as a persona, as a kind of mm-hmm. larger than life figure that is constructed socially uh, and that does specific kinds of political work for you know, the French government, for colonial administrators, for people within the Pasteur Institute. Yeah, and you have these sort of different iterations from the name, right? The the idea of the Pastorian as that type of figure who is a student of Pasteur, either directly or sort of indirectly uh, along the way. And then the Pasteur Institutes that spread throughout the French Empire from the what end of the 19th century through right up to the outbreak of the, the Second World War. And then this term that you use pasteurization. So can you tell us what pasteurization means in relationship to the Pastorians and the Pasteur Institutes, like how those kinds of iterations of from Pasteur fit together? Yeah. So, you know, every book has got to have its own neologism. Yes. Uh, And this one's yours. This one's mine, but it really came out of, of wanting to somehow describe this, this process where these very specific microbiological projects that members of the Pasteur Institute are pursuing in various colonies. So things like, you know, developing a new way of fermenting rice wine Mm -hmm. or developing a vaccine for yellow fever. I wanted to kind of capture how these projects outside of the laboratory become tools for accomplishing political goals. Mm -hmm. So the project for fermenting rice wine is not just, you know, an interesting scientific project for, you know, making the process of fermentation somehow more efficient. It is also a project to help consolidate 
the Vietnamese alcohol industry in the hands of very particular French businessmen and give them a competitive edge over their local Vietnamese and, and Chinese competitors. And similarly, you know, the project for developing a yellow fever vaccine was not just about kind of humanitarian public health or f- trying to find a cure for a particular kind of disease. It was also a way through which French administrators tried to resolve racial and political tensions in Senegal and in, in elsewhere in West Africa, that other kinds of public health measures were amplifying. Mm-hmm. It's the, the term pasteurization then refers to this way of trying to solve political problems with microbiological tools. Mm. When you say Pasteur Institute, there's a way in which it can kind of take on this quality of like a franchise, right? <laughs> that it's like the same in every place. And I just wonder how you, you know, in dealing with this project and in taking this on, there are these um, common threads and things that run throughout the project, but then there are all these differences in it. I don't know. It just seems like it was a very unwieldy project to kind of manage as well. So I, I wonder what, what, if you had any thoughts about that. Oh my God. Yes, <laughs> it was, uh, it was so unwieldy. I mean, the, the, the challenge of pulling all of this together, uh, you know, I think you're, you're exactly right. You know, one of the, the central themes of the book and one of the things I was most interested in was this interplay between this kind of universalizing claim that the microbiologists, uh, the pastorians are making, and then the very, very specific local battles and mm-hmm. local situations that they get into that the, this universalizing claim can, can kind of occlude. You know, essentially what the pastorians are saying is that, um, you know, guess what, uh, you colonial administrator, um, you who've been struggling for your entire life because you get posted in one place for four years and then you shuttle off to a completely different part of the world and you have to figure out what's going on over there and you're constantly trying to figure out who the local power brokers are and who do you need to appease and who do you need to cut deals with. You know, guess what? We can take all of this away, at least when it comes to public health and, and probably a few other domains as well, because... Uh, you know, instead of figuring out, oh, what's the local climate like? What are the people, what are people's morals like? You know, what are the, you know, racial qualities of, of this or that particular disease? Um, you don't need to know any of this anymore. You just need to know what's the microbe. And then mm-hmm. you tell us what the microbe is and we tell you what the vaccine is. Um, and that's it. And that's an incredibly powerful incentive or that's an incredibly powerful promise i guess mm-hmm. but then the reality is that that the pastorians can't actually deliver on that promise it's it's a hopelessly oversimplified model of the world it's, it's a model of the world that is still with us i think <laughs> to a large extent but it, it clearly doesn't work so i was interested in figuring out exactly the ways in which it does not work mm-hmm. <laughs> and and how these guys manage to to maintain this fiction for so long. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what this meant was that I was going to have to sacrifice some things. So, um, you know, the book doesn't really have a whole lot to say about vernacular medicine or, or local medical traditions. It is very much interested in the tradition of biomedicine, mm-hmm. um, Western biomedicine and bacteriology. You know, every chapter uh, has an element of debate where 
um, you know, colonial subjects take up the language of, of microbiology and use it for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. So it is very attentive to the local context, but it's, it's not looking at these other medical traditions. I want to ask you a little bit about some of the other parameters of the, the project, are the, like the chronological scope of the project, you know, the decision to kind of focus on the Third Republic and what the specificity of that is. And then, yeah, you've already sort of raised this issue of, you know, how you're engaging the perspective and positions and resistance of uh, figures in the colonies, um, populations uh, throughout the empire and the representatives of these institutes, the, you know, French governing forces in these various places. And I guess I just want to ask you a little bit more about the actors, you know, who the stars of the book are, um, who are the kind of supporting actors of the book. And then in terms of your sources, like how you're getting at this history, uh, what types of materials did you use to access those different perspectives and, you know, the reach across these different sites that you're looking at in the book? Let's maybe start with a cast of characters. And, you know, I really do uh, like the, that it has a cast of characters because, um, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of histories of, of science and technology or these STS-inflected works uh, can become quite theoretical at times and quite demanding from the reader because in addition to keeping track of the, the historical argument, uh, you also have to keep track of, of a number of technical arguments because you do have to explain some of the the bacteriological processes at work or some of the, the lab techniques and, and those kinds of things. Um, so I was very happy to see um, that the people I was encountering in the archives were all extremely interesting people. So, you know, for instance, there's... Um, there's Alexandre Yersin, who is the Swiss doctor um, I mentioned earlier, who comes to to Paris and and is kind of disappointed in the in the high life of Paris and and is almost going to leave and then encounters Pasteur and and his laboratory director Emile Roux and becomes a microbiologist and then quickly leaves for um, for Indochina and sets up shop first in in Saigon and then in in Natrang and and stays there for for his entire life. And he continues to work as a bacteriologist, but he also uh, buys up a lot of land and starts a bunch of plantations and cultivates rubber and quinine and, uh, you know, has his own little empire, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and becomes extremely well-known in, in Vietnam. He's uh, uh, he's called Uncle Yersin, right? Like, uh, like Uncle Ho, um, Uncle Ho Chi Minh. You know, if you go to go, if you go to Ho Chi Minh City, all the street names are Vietnamese, except for the ones named after Pasteur, Yersin, and then a third uh, Pastorian, Albert Calmet. So, so that's super fascinating. So it's it's these kinds of guys. They're they're incredibly eccentric. Some of them are, are quite ambitious. So they're very interesting to study. But then, you know, there are also other characters who move into this story, like, uh, you know, the listeners might know better, like uh, Blaise Diagne, the, the West African deputy to the National Assembly in the early 20th century, who is uh, quite important in how some of the big epidemics in Senegal and Dakar uh, play out in the 1910s and 1920s, and, and really, you know, is one of the people who calls the French to task for essentially being hypocritical in how they apply their public health measures. You know, there are these uh, these instances where if a disease hits 
Dakar that affects disproportionately Africans, uh, such as the plague, because the French live in better housing, so rats don't get into those houses. You know, then the French impose just incredibly draconian measures on African uh, citizens of Dakar. You know, they burn down entire districts, they relocate people, they put people in mandatory quarantine. And then if it's another disease, uh, in this particular case, yellow fever, which impacts disproportionately the French, who usually, you know, have moved to Dakar in their adulthood and don't have childhood immunity, you know, then the French you know, kind of put on their silk gloves and and just say, there, there, maybe you could try staying at home, but, you know, you do as you want. Um, and Blaise Diagne mm-hmm. is, is one of the people who, you know, really makes a fuss about it and says, look, this is, this is blatant hypocrisy. If you're going to be draconian when it's Africans who are falling ill, then you should also be as draconian when it's the French who are falling ill. So what about the sources that you're using to access the different perspectives for this project where did you have to go what what are you working with throughout the the book and you know if there are any challenges that came up along the way <laughs> any challenges like that maybe happened <laughs> <laughs> yes there were no challenges whatsoever the sources were incredibly forthcoming super easy to read and interpret <laughs> no <laughs> so uh, a large part of the sources comes from uh the Institute, uh, the Pasteur Institute archives, um, but not just from the archives in Paris, but also from, for instance, the archives of the uh, Institut Pasteur uh, in Dakar. And actually, some of the most in- interesting stuff comes from those from those uh, overseas archives. So, for instance, there is a story I tell in the book about this yellow fever vaccination campaign, um, which the French reported as being incredibly successful. They vaccinated 14 million people over the course of, of the Second World War. And in a certain sense, it was very successful because it nearly eradicated uh, yellow fever for a good decade and a half. Uh, but the vaccination campaign also had uh, instances of some very serious adverse side, uh, adverse effects um, on small children and, and may well have killed uh, quite a few people um, in this mm. process. And uh, the way I learned about this was by uh, looking at actual reports being sent in from um, the field by the vaccinators themselves and, and looking at exactly how haphazard these processes were and how how difficult it was to monitor people who had received the vaccine, you know, for 10 or 12 or 14 days, which was when those adverse effects would manifest themselves. And those documents I found not in Paris, but in Dakar, um, in the archives of, of the Institute there, which you know, was on the roof of this building and and had clearly not been open for some time. We actually had to pry the door open with a crowbar because the door had gotten jammed. Mm. So getting to some of those archives was really important um, for this project to to really get at how, uh, not just how the pastorians uh, told others that they were conducting their business, but how they actually did it, right? How they actually reported on, on their own work to each other. Um, mm-hmm. And then I complemented that with um, with stuff I found uh, in the archives of, uh, of various, uh, you know, the colonial archives in Aix-en-Provence, 
the National Archives of Senegal, National Archives of Vietnam, where and, and that was important for, you know, getting the larger uh, discourse around some of these projects and for getting precisely the voices of colonial subjects, uh, but also voices of other scientists who were keeping track on these things, who were critiquing the pastorians, who were calling them to task for, you know, oversights or corners that they were cutting, whether this was at the Rockefeller Foundation, um, so went to their archives in Sleepy Hollow or the League of Nations health organization in Geneva. Sleepy Hollow, like Ichabod Crane Sleepy Hollow? I think so, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I only ever think of Sleepy <laughs> Hollow in relationship to that. So it's, um, it's a very different place uh, <laughs> than what it sounds like in the book. Uh, I actually don't know if, it's, if, it's, if it has any relationship to the book, but uh, it has this... <laughs> The Rockefeller Foundation has a huge mansion there. It's it's a really lavish place to be working in. You, listening to you talk about your movements and where you you know found uh, the material that you needed for the book makes me want to come back to this issue of of scale, but also you know this thing that runs throughout the book around the question of mobility. So you're really negotiating, and we've already touched on it a couple of times the local context of where these institutes are are. Are situated the relationship between you know so-called metropole and various points in the empire, the connections not just between metropole and empire but between different places within in, what do you call it interimperial yep. right and then also this issue of this project as a history of what you and perhaps others I don't know term medical globalization the idea that these scientists and figures are working within an international network where there's an exchange of ideas so you know if Pasteur was a superhero of the 19th century within that community that these communities are still you know they're building and changing over time and that all of these different sites play role in that so yeah could you talk a little bit about those concepts and ideas and how they're working throughout the the project, this notion of scale, but also of mobility, the politics of mobility. Yeah. Um, let me start with the uh, politics of mobility, right? When I started looking at the network of the Pasteur Institutes, and it really is a network, it's, you know, 14, mm-hmm. 15 laboratories all around the empire and in a couple of places that are outside of the empire. My question was, well, what, how does this network work? What does it mean to be within this network? And what does it mean to be left outside of this network? And that, you know, really turned out to be really, really important. Uh, the, precisely the fact that the colonies are not all the same. You know, let's take the example of, of yellow fever, right? And developing the yellow mm-hmm. fever vaccine. This project begins in Dakar because that's where a yellow fever epidemic happens in 1927. And that's where political tensions reach a boiling point. So the French administrators really need something to tell uh, African political activists and, and you know, people putting pressure on them to say, look, we're, we're not going to burn down more houses. We're going to find some kind of more humanitarian solution to yellow fever. And having this vaccine program is precisely the answer to that. But then... The infrastructure in Dakar is not such that you can actually, you know, run a multi-year vaccine development program. So, so in order to do that, mm. the Pastorians go to Paris. Well, they actually go to New York to visit some friends at the Rockefeller Foundation and, and learn techniques about how to cultivate the yellow fever virus in lab mice. And then they return to Paris 
where they can actually do the lab work. Mm. And then at a certain point, they have a, uh, they have a viable vaccine, but the head of the Paris laboratory won't let them proceed to human trials because quite a few people at this point have contracted yellow fever in the laboratory and died. And there's quite a bit of criticism going on in the scientific community around the French vaccine that they're developing. And and, uh, it doesn't just seem to be worth the risk. Mm -hmm. But then the French can go to Tunisia. (laughs) To a different right. Pasteur Institute. Tunis has a more developed état civil, has more developed, you know, keeping of people's demographic data. So it's it's somewhat easier to run human trials there, but it also has less oversight than Paris does. And it has right. a head of the laboratory who, for reasons that I discuss in the book, has, is always looking for ways to one-up the Paris Institute. So... <laughs> They get to do the human trials there, and then eventually they go back to West Africa to then actually roll out the vaccine. So what we're seeing here is that it's not that every place in the network is the same. It's precisely that every place in the network is not the same, that they are all different in some ways. They they provide some advantages and some disadvantages for pursuing these projects, and these advantages and disadvantages come with costs that are often borne by local populations, by, you know, people who become the subjects of these human trials or, you know, who are vaccinated and then their, um, the adverse effects of, of uh, their vaccinations are, are left unrecorded and the French get to report back, you know, their great success stories. So it's that kind of lumpiness that is actually a kind of resource mm-hmm. for the Pastorians, that they, they have the ability uh, to just up and leave uh, to a different place if they need a different kind of, of, uh, of setting. And of course, you know, um, other people travel too. You know, Blaise Diagne uh, also travels between France and, and West Africa. And, uh, you know, many of the, uh, the Vietnamese critics of the Pastorians also uh, correspond with, with French doctors and, and travel to France or, or travel to other places in the empire. Um, but their networks, you know, are somewhat different. Their ability to move, you know, mm-hmm. their speed is somewhat different. So all of these things matter. And the scale part, like, the, I mean, and there's a relationship between them. <laughs> but yeah, how would you kind of explain that to, to someone who hadn't yet read the book? Yeah, I mean, the scale part um, really has to do with, with this universal promise of, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can do this work anywhere. We can... Uh, eradicate any disease uh, wherever the disease exists, right? That's that's kind of the largest scale on which the Pastorians are thinking. But then, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can't just say that, right? You need to convince people <laughs> right. that um, the problems that you're talking about, whether it's tuberculosis or yellow fever or, you know, the difficulty of fermenting alcohol actually exist on a global scale, or at least on some sort of large Mm -hmm. scale. So you get the kinds of resources needed to send your people out to, you know, Indochina and West Africa and North Africa and and so forth. When I'm talking about the politics of scale, I'm trying to parse out what is it that, that you actually need to do to convince people that, look, you thought you were facing a local problem, but you're actually facing, you know, at least an imperial problem, if not a global problem. So, you know, we see this, for instance, with tuberculosis, Mm -hmm. which 
you know, the French are convinced pretty much up until the end of the 19th century is a problem of civilized nations. It is not a problem that exists in the uncivilized world, which is to say in the colonies. It's a disease of over-civilization, right? It's uh, you drinking too much, spending too much time indoors, spending too much time in, in urban settings. Uh, it's something that's a problem in Paris and Lille and, and maybe Marseille, but definitely not in Algiers or Dakar or, or Saigon. And then the Pistorians come along and, and they really start challenging this notion. And they have to do quite a bit of work to dispel people um, of this idea. So um, they have to discredit previous studies um, that have shown that, look, we're not really seeing that much TB. Um, and the way they can do that is, is by essentially saying, look, these studies are unscientific. They are basically uh, trying to guess whether somebody had tuberculosis based on their symptoms when they're admitted to a hospital, but lots of, of respiratory diseases present with similar symptoms to TB. They could be mistaking it for other diseases, and they're certainly missing you know, all cases of TB that are not bad enough um, for people to be admitted to hospitals, and how many hospitals are there in West Africa anyway? So, mm. you know, instead they develop, a, or rather they borrow this method called the tuberculin skin test, which, you know, I think is, is probably familiar to some people where you essentially put a drop of, of a liquid on your skin, and then if uh, you develop a rash there, then you'll know that you you will you have been exposed to TB. You know, it's it's sort of similar to an antibody test against COVID, right? If you want to know if you ever had mm. COVID, so you know, so that's one way they can they can then say, okay, well, we we think we're seeing more tuberculosis, and then you know they also have to say, well, why is this a problem? Um, well, it's a problem because we have a different way of thinking about how TB is transmitted. It's not generated by that loose morals or, or drinking too much or, you know, leading a, a promiscuous lifestyle. It's, it's transmitted through infection, through contact. And the way this mm -hmm. contact is happening is through Europeans bringing it to the colonies through, you know, military service, through urban centers, et cetera, et cetera. So you actually need to pay attention to this because this is going to become a PR problem for you guys. You can see how this is a, it's a lot of work, man. It's, it's mm -hmm. uh, you know, you need to develop new technologies. You need to have this network where people can go and test people in various places. You need to have a theory that brings it all together, that, that answers the question, well, why is this disease present in all of these different colonies? Um, and then you have a global problem that you can offer a solution to. Um, but, you know, what I'm trying to do here is, is show that actually posing this problem is not nearly as simple as you think it is. It takes a lot of work. This is kind of a weird question, Aro, but as authors, we develop these relationships to the people that we're writing about and they, they're complicated. How would you characterize yours to, to the pastorians? <laughs> complicated is a pretty good word. I wondered about that I was as I was reading the book, because there are these sort of careful moments when you turn the reader away from a too easy alignment of the pastorians with, you know, imperial governance or what, what, but, you know, that we need to understand how these things work together. But there's also sort of these pockets of exception and difference and tension. So yeah, I just, I guess I just wonder about your relationship to this group of people that you've spent years of your life studying and, and writing about. Yeah, you know, I really, 
don't like stories that have heroes and villains, right? I think that's uh, right. a poor representation of reality. Nobody is entirely heroic or enti- entirely villainous. People are, you know, stuck in their contexts. Mm-hmm. In general, I think in all of my research, um, partly because of that that dislike for heroes and, and villains, um, I'm drawn to activities that on the face of it seem just you know, almost saintly. Right. Almost, you know, who could have anything against public health? Right. Isn't that an unmitigated <laughs> good? And, and with the Pastorians, you know, you they kind of have an, a saintly air about them. You know, they've constructed it themselves. Mm. But even, you know, you, you go to the Paris, you go to the Pasteur Institute or you go to, you know, you look at these street names in, in Ho Chi Minh City and you're like, wow, like you guys tore down everything French after the war. Mm. But you decided that these three guys were great enough that they could stay. They somehow were not a part mm. of this colonial enterprise. I'm, I'm just super fascinated by that. So, you know, a part of my relationship uh, to these guys is trying to dispel that aura of saintliness a little bit and, and recover, you know, some of the complexity um, that they actually had. You know, sometimes their interests aligned with the interests of the colonial government, sometimes in really pernicious ways. Other times they were the people who, who you know, went and, and told the governor general of West Africa that, look, you can't just conduct public health as a police operation because you're going to lose the trust of the public. And when people start thinking of doctors as policemen, then this is going to be terrible. They're not going to disclose if they're having symptoms. They're not going to um, you know, it's it's going to make the problem worse rather than solve it. They did think of themselves as humanitarians. But then, of course, mm-hmm. so did many people who talked about the civilizing mission in the 19th century. So uh, they had sure. those exact same blinders as other people did. <laughs> I don't want to say the word zoom in anymore after this year. <laughs> Every time I use the word Zoom, I just I start to get a rash or something. Um, but let's let's sort of move in on the guys part of these guys and the kind of the theme that you know you focus on in is it cha- chapter three now? Is it chapter it's three chapter or three, four? Yeah. It's chapter three. How masculinity plays a role. I mean, I found that aspect of the project really fascinating. So can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Thank you. I've uh, I, it's actually great to hear you say that because I've, I've had a lot of conversations with with people who've asked me, you know, like, does, does that chapter need to be in there? Uh, it seems to be of a different, ah, different. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think so, too. I think the masculinity part is is woven throughout, right? But the idea is that each chapter kind of zooms in on, on one aspect of the story more closely. From the outset of the project, it struck me that um, scientists in the empire is such a weird concept because the kind of idea of the late 19th century scientist seems to fit so poorly with the kind of guy who would go on a colonial adventure. You read Claude Bernard, 
for instance, or other people like that. And, and they always talk about how being a scientist is about, you know, suppressing your passions and restraining your instincts and removing yourself from the, the world so you can be as objective and as dispassionate as possible. So you can actually properly interpret the data you're getting from the natural world. And, you know, nothing about the colonial project is dispassionate or restrained or <laughs> removed from the world. You know, it's about swashbuckling and it's about living out your, you know, masculine fantasies of, of conquest. Uh, so I, I try to figure out how does, how does that work? And it turns out that that's a real struggle. There is an ongoing conflict between those bacteriologists who go to work in, in Indochina um, or, or Africa and the people who remain back home. The people back home look at them kind of suspiciously because they're like, you know, why aren't you in your laboratory? Why are you out on an expedition? Um, you know, why are you building a plantation? Why are you writing uh, stories of your heroic adventures, you know, fighting against a brigand of pirates in the mountains of, uh, of Vietnam? Like that doesn't, that isn't the very scientific thing to be doing. And the guys in, in Indochina and, and Africa are upset because they feel held back and disrespected and that they're not being taken seriously enough. And they feel, you know, particularly in uh, the period following World War One, when the Institute in Paris is in dire financial straits, they feel like they have a better solution for ensuring the future of their discipline, which is working together with governments, working together with industry, um, you know, making a profit, finding new ways of bringing in money so that they can actually sustain this enterprise because it seems to it seems clear to them that they can't just do it by standing back and hoping to be generously generously funded by uh, philanthropists. And, you know, and at stake in this is really, you know, it's masculinity in a broad sense, but it's also masculinity in, in the kind of reproductive sense, right? They're asking, uh, you know, questions like, you know, who's going to want to come and be a microbiologist if you can't support a family, if you're not being taken seriously as a, as a provider, uh, you know, let alone these questions about, you know, we want to be conquerors and, and adventurers rather than kind of being emasculated. It seems sort of obvious, I guess, you know, in a in a in a book that's about um, the empire, you know, that, of course, the book has to engage the question of race in various ways. But, yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated by, you know, how you're thinking about race throughout the book, how these pastorians were kind of engaged with these issues. So yeah, I'd love it if you could say a little bit about how you see the book as a contribution to how we understand. <laughs> Another tiny question, Aro. Race <laughs> and empire, you know, just in two minutes or less, uh, go for it. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting case because, you know, there's, there's a lot of racialized medical science out there, but the Pistorians yeah. really are aren't among them. Their understanding of microbiology um, and of the germ theory of disease is, is really kind of, race doesn't really factor into it. And in fact, they are often the ones to overturn some popular notions of, of racialized biology. For instance, they reject ideas that maybe um, TB cont contagiousness is based on race. And maybe that's why there's so little of it uh, in the colonies, because um, 
Black Africans and and the Vietnamese have some kind of racial immunity to it. They say no, no, that's that doesn't make sense in our particular framework. Mm. And then you know, in other ways, of course, they they reproduce uh, you know racialized structures of rule you know, in a in a variety of ways. You know, and of course, the, the institute itself is uh, is highly um, racially hierarchical. You know, there are no people of color who are uh, scientists. There are a lot of lab assistants, um, for instance, in the Institute in Dakar, who are African, and uh, a lot of lab assistants in uh, in Indochina who are Vietnamese, um, but they don't make it mm-hmm. above a, a, a certain level. So it's it's re- reproducing those structures, too. So I th- I'd say the relationship is is complicated. I'm looking at the cover of, you know, the book. Arrow as we're talking about this. And I'm, you know, I've thought had different thoughts about the cover of the book along the way. And of course, as you were saying this, I'm just sort of looking at just the structure of the cover of the book and the the illustration. <laughs> um, listeners, you'll get to see the cover of the book at the blog post, but and can also look at, at it elsewhere. But yeah, with the um, is this an image from the bottom? Is the image from Dakar? Is that where that one's yeah, from? Yeah, exactly. I just kind of glanced over at it as you were saying that and thought, oh, yeah, you know, now I see it again. I mean, I think one of the ways I'm thinking about race here is not so much as a uh, as a kind of discursive contract uh, construct or as a kind of knowledge construct. The, the way it really works here is not through, you know, um, people saying, oh, we think, you know, such and such is, uh, you know, this disease has some kind of racialized component to it, or we should look at it differently when it comes uh, to Europeans and Africans because of, you know, uh, racial immunity or some such concept. The way race operates Mm -hmm. here is really through infrastructure. It's Mm. because the kinds of infrastructures the Pastorians build are racialized. You know, when they build networks of laboratories, you know, let's let's take, for instance, the yellow fever vaccine. If a French person receives it, they'll receive it in Paris before they go and take their trip to to West Africa. And then there'll be a long list of contraindications. The person can choose when they receive it. They'll be monitored. You know, if something yeah. happens, they'll have a hospital they can go to to get it checked out immediately. When someone from West Africa, uh, a Black African, receives the vaccine, they'll most likely receive it as part of a va- mass vaccination campaign that's run by the military that involves, you know, a group of vaccinators coming to a particular location, ordering everyone from the nearest four or five villages, which can be, you know, uh, 10 miles away, to show up at a particular time and date. And then they'll be vaccinated. Nobody's asking any questions about, you know, do you have a fever right now? You know, what are you generally healthy? You know, are there any possible contraindications? No, they're just kind of lined up and, and vaccinated. And then the team leaves, right? And if, mm. you know, one of them, one of the people vaccinated develops some kinds of side effects, you know, let's say a week down the line, then good luck finding a Western hospital that can do anything about it, that even, you know, knows that you've been vaccinated and, and has the necessary knowledge to, to deal with the situation. So, so the racialization works through those kinds of mechanisms, um, not so mm-hmm. much through you know theories of of racialized biology that the historians are developing because they're not really doing that. So the book Aro covers this the period of the Third Republic 
really. And then, you know, as you're moving towards the, the close of the book, you look ahead uh, to the to the post-1945 period and to the post-colonial period. And yeah, I guess I want to ask you about the way that the moment, you know, of many of decades, <laughs> the moment that the book deals with lays groundwork for what comes in what we might call a post-colonial period, even though that looks very different in different parts of the empire. Um, and there are, of course, places that continue to be a part of the French empire after, you know, the Second World War. Um, and then, you know, right up to the present, really. So, so yeah, how you think about the legacies of this period that you're looking at in the book, you know, what becomes of the pastorians in the post-1945 period? And how does that interact with with what with that period of decolonizations and and of what we might refer to as as the post-colonial French context and the post-colonial world. Yeah, well the pastoral institutes are still there, right? They're, they're still mm-hmm. there in in Dakar, in uh, in Guinea, in in Vietnam, uh, in North Africa. So I and and they're quite important. They're the major research institutions in their particular re- uh, regions. And I think that tells mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. a lot about this continuity. There's a way in which the post-war period is, is quite different from the pre-war period. And that's partly why I don't really go into it, because there we're really getting into mm-hmm. the era of, uh, of developmentalism and ideas about right. public health change quite a bit. There's this moment where, you know, this kind of magic bullet, let's just, you know, vaccinate our way out of things, or let's just find, you know, the the one <laughs> the one kind of doohickey that cures all problems kind of goes away and people think expansively about, you know, building primary care infrastructure and education. Did they just forget all that? Or like, what, what happened? To, to well, that? you know, the, the same thing that happened to everything else. The 1970s happened. Yeah, 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 that's right, yeah. The 1970s happened, and then people rediscover these Pastorian projects. And in a kind of, in a bizarre and kind of perverse way, they become justifications for rolling back these more expansive programs and really focusing on these um, you know, these global health solutions um, like mass mm-hmm. vaccination campaigns or, uh, you know, and don't get me wrong, like some of them are really good, but they're no substitute um, for building mm-hmm. out real real health infrastructure. And, and the reason why I'm saying that, that they're perverse is because, you know, <laughs> there are people, you know, looking at invoking the Pastorian vaccination campaigns of the 30s and 40s in the year 2010, and saying, look how how successful they were. And yeah. it's like, no, they weren't. They were, one, <laughs> back in the day, they were used precisely for the same reason, which is to say, as an excuse to not actually invest in building out institutions, infrastructure, and training professionals. Um, the, mm. the logic was exactly the same. So yes, we can say that it's great that that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people were were vaccinated against TB. You know, we can talk about whether the yellow fever campaign of the, of the 40s was successful or not. But we can't forget that at the same time, these were also the colonial government's excuses for not investing um, in mm. these other long-term substantial 
health improvements. Uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, to say that these were successful, you're, you're kind of giving away the game there, you know? <laughs> yes, if, if what you're intending to do is, is, is exactly the same thing, then yes, we can call them successful. And unfortunately, sometimes it does feel like that's, that's how the game is being played today as well. So, Aro, the experience of reading this book, I mean, I said it before we started recording and I, I, I sort of mentioned it you know, at the outset, it was freaky, for lack of a better word, <laughs> reading this book during our current moment. And, you know, after the, the year and a half and more that we've all had, you know, as an individual, my community, and then, you know, just thinking about the global predicament, not to mention some of the other things that have been going on. Anyway, I, I guess I want to ask you, this project, you finished it, I think you said, it came out like the week or two before lockdown. Yeah, right? yeah. I managed to do exactly one talk uh, across the, the the town at UCLA and then uh, lockdown happened. So yeah, there's a couple of things. I guess I just wonder how you've been thinking about what's been happening uh, over this year and more in light of, of the work that you, you've done. And then, yeah, whether or not you think about the project differently in light of what you've and we've all been experiencing over this this period of time and this period of, of global pandemic. Yeah, uh, I've, I have a lot of feelings about that. Uh, and there, some of them are feelings of frustration and some of them are, are feelings of humility. So the feelings of frustration have to do with, you know, I... I, I knew that this whole uh, techno fix mania or or this kind of search for a for a silver bullet that this this is something that is still with us. Um, I didn't quite imagine the degree to with uh, to which it remains with us. You know, the moment where it seemed like everybody's answer to this pandemic was, you know, well, we'll wait for the good people of, of uh, Oxford and, and BioNTech and Moderna to give us a vaccine and then we'll be out of it. I, I was just like, oh my God, have we learned nothing? You know, and it was just, you know, all these questions, there were questions about um, infrastructure, you know, how are we actually going to, mm. to be manufacturing these things? How are we going to be distributing them? This, this is all going to generate new kinds of inequalities and new kinds of problems um, just seemed yeah. quite apparent from the early on. And it was just mind bogglingly frustrating that, you know, it was, these were things that were be being addressed uh, obviously, you know, in the scientific community and pages of, you know, academic journals, but in, in public discourse and in, in public policy, you know, it just, just seemed like there was very little thinking ahead going on. So in that sense, it was, it's it's been a frustrating experience seeing these things kind of uh, repeat themselves and in other ways it's been humbling because living through this period where you really do experience the fog of war you really mm -hmm. do realize how little we know even in the year 2021 even with you know some really remarkable advances in in technology and and science how little we know about infectious disease we still don't quite understand you know, why some people are infected, why the uh, infection waves, uh, you know, rise and crest the way they do. You know, we, we understand more than we did in the 19th century, but, but there's still a lot of fog of war. So, mm. you know, that really, like there were moments when, in, when writing the project where I was just very angry with my 
actors with the people I was studying where it was, you know, like, how can you not mm-hmm. tell that this thing is going to blow up in your face? Or why can you not understand that this is not going to be as easy as you think? And having lived through the past year, I have a lot more sympathy for them. It really is incredibly hard to have to make these kinds of decisions that are going to have mm-hmm. life and death consequences on people with extremely limited information, mm-hmm. with information that's that often requires very high levels of specialization, um, and with very little time, right? You can't wait for all the data to come in because you need to act now. Like when when you're in the middle of a uh, of an of a pandemic, when you're in the middle of you know exponentially growing infections, every hour counts. Um, I do want to ask you, and I and again, I've been asking questions a little bit differently during this period because you know I always ask people, Aro, like, what are you working on now? But I also this past year and more, I want to say, if you're not, that's okay too. <laughs> but what what project are you thinking about in the future? What have you already started? Another project? I mean, you just had a book come out in 2020, so wherever you're at with that, whatever you want to tell us about what's next for you. Well, it is, uh, I, I appreciate the, uh, the tone of your question because it is, it is true that I, well, one of the things I've, I've really, uh, you know, I hope have learned during the pandemic is that, you know, work is not as important as, as family and, and your private life. So I'm, I'm trying to prioritize that a little bit, but I'm, you know, there's, there's work that's come out of the, uh, the book that, uh, I'm pursuing. I'm, uh, become increasingly interested in in standards in microbiology. How do we decide that this is a particular process through which we deliver vaccines to people? These are the tools that we use, and what are the the political consequences of that? So I'm I'm working on an article and an, an edited journal issue that sort of thinks about these kinds of things. But then you know, overall, I'm 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 still interested in you know the relationship of of technology and politics, and particularly when it relates to ideas about universal or global governance, and when it also relates to these things that uh, have a kind of shiny gloss that seems almost impenetrable. So the longer term project I'm working on is actually taking me um, away from French history and to Soviet history, which is, you know, my other passion and the other thing I can do because of the language skills I have. Um, and I'm I'm basically working on a history of uh, of information processing in the Soviet Union and in the post-Soviet period. So sort of starting from the 1960s and moving into the present, because you know this idea that the solution to you know various problems of social organization lies in gathering a bunch of data and crunching it through a computer is one that's very old and is one that is not limited to Silicon Valley, although the story has been told as a kind of, you know, techno-optimistic tale of, of you know, Apple and, uh, and the Department of Defense and, you know, the rise of the Internet. Uh, but I'm interested in pursuing this uh, in the case of Soviet cybernetics and its legacy um, into the 1990s and the 2000s. So that's, that's the big project right now. Wow, that sounds completely fascinating. And, um, you know... I'm not going to switch over to new books in Soviet studies, but I do want to hear about this more. (laughs) Aro, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time at this difficult, challenging time of just everything that's been going on. It's just been a real pleasure. It's great to, to read you and to speak with you. And yeah, thanks so much for joining me and for, for writing this wonderful book. Uh, Thank you, Roxanne. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. 